Now take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Today marks the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attack against the United States, where more than 3,000 people died that morning, including 400, really more than 400 police and fire personnel. Uh, I think that was a day where most of us uh, can remember very vividly where we were and exactly what we were thinking and how the rest of the day proceeded once we became aware of what was happening. Uh, and it was a day really when we were reminded of the important, well, the importance of, of constant vigilance when it comes to protecting our freedoms as a nation. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Uh, some historians believe that he borrowed that phrase from an Irish politician, a man named John Philpot Curran, who said something very similar. His words were this, the condition upon which God has given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. Think about that for a moment. The condition upon which God has given liberty to man is eternal <coughs> vigilance. You know, as great as the freedoms are that we enjoy as Americans, the greatest freedom of all is that which we have in Jesus Christ. By his death on the cross, he set us free from sin. He won the victory for us, as Neil uh, so wonderfully shared with us last week. And let me just say this. Uh, Neil kind of teased about me giving him the hard passage of Scripture. <clears throat> you know what? If I could have planned that out, there is a real good possibility that I might have done just that. Uh, but it was really not an intentional thing. But let me say this. That is an exceptionally difficult passage. And he did an exceptional job handling it. And I uh, really appreciate his, his, uh, his work there, uh, faithful to the Word of God. Jesus Christ has won the victory for us on the cross by His death. I know that's difficult sometimes for us to grasp or to think of it in that way. As Neil shared, we sometimes think that the real victory came on resurrection morning. But, but truly, Christ's victory over sin and death and the devil came uh, on Friday, when he died for our sins on the cross, when he drank the cup of God's wrath, uh, securing our salvation, the salvation of all who would eventually believe. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. That sounds a little bit like being vigilant, does it not? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Again, Paul is talking about sin here, the slavery of submitting ourselves to sin. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's found in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read this passage of Scripture together, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. And Peter will remind us again today that vigilance is still essential if we are to wage warfare in the wild. And isn't that what we're doing? We are waging warfare in the wild. I know sometimes we lose sight of that. Uh, we're to be peacemakers. We're to pursue peace. 
But the reality is there are enemies to the gospel, enemies of God, enemies of the church. And let me tell you, they are vigilant. And we too must be vigilant. Let's read this passage of scripture. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. There's a call to vigilance. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices. Really, that word means is, is more than enough. All right? The time that is past is more than enough for doing what the Gentiles or the pagans want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Doesn't that sound like 2022? With respect to this, they, the Gentiles, the pagans, they're, they're surprised when you, not, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's, let's pray and we'll look at this text. Father, we are thankful today for this appeal, this charge to the church of Jesus Christ, to we who have become members of the body of Christ. Lord, help us to arm ourselves uh, as Christ armed himself. Lord, he suffered. And, and scripture makes it absolutely clear that we too will suffer. But Lord, his suffering led to victory. And Lord, we're reminded that our suffering will also lead to victory. So help us not to shy away from suffering. Lord, help us to answer the call of Christ, to live as we have been called to live, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our strength, our soul, our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself, to, to lay down our lives for one another, to sacrifice willingly, to suffer for the cause of Christ. Knowing, Father, that our future is absolutely secure. We are safe in your hands. He who is within me is greater, far greater than he who is within the world. So Lord, help us today to embrace the suffering that will no doubt come our way as we follow Jesus. And we'll give you thanks and praise for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Peter says, and of course he's not the only one that says this. As a matter of fact, this isn't the only time that Peter says this. But he says in order to follow Jesus, to embrace this suffering that will come as a natural course of following Jesus will require a commitment on our part. Now, I hope that doesn't come as a shock to anybody this morning. Following Jesus, serving the Lord, living as God has called us to live demands a commitment on our part. We need to be reminded of this regularly because what happens to us is we get so caught up in the world in which we live with all the problems that come our way, uh, with all of the difficulties, with all of the desires that flood our heart and mind, we, we, we find ourselves drifting away and really committing ourselves, our time, our energy, our monies, to things other than that which Christ has called us to. 
So we've got to constantly be reminded. We've got to constantly be called back to the commitment that we have made to Jesus Christ. When you gave your heart and life to Christ, when you prayed to receive Christ as Savior and Lord, I hope that whoever was with you in that moment helped you to understand that what you were doing was making a commitment. You were making a declaration, Lord, from this day forward, I am leaving my past behind. I am repenting of my sin. I am turning from those deeds that did not honor you. I am forsaking them, and I am turning wholeheartedly to face you and to follow the path that you have established for me. That's a commitment. Again, the Christian life was never intended, nor is it portrayed in Scripture, whether you're looking in the Old Testament or the New Testament, followers of God have never had an easy, comfortable time of it, at least not consistently. The life of a Christian is, again, a life of sacrifice, service, sacrificial service, and suffering. Again, we have had the great blessing of living here in the United States of America where Christianity has been embraced, for the most part, as, as just a part of who we are. Uh, and so our getting up on Sunday mornings and coming to church and gathering here to sing and to share around the Word of God uh, doesn't strike too many people these days as particularly odd. They may not understand it completely or agree with it, but it's just a part of who, who we are and who we are as, as Americans. But let me tell you, Christianity throughout the world is not so uh, well thought of, and nor is it considered mainline. Uh, Christians are gathering all over the world today secretly so that they can do the very things that we did today, sing and lift up their voices in praise to Jesus, their Savior. Open the Word of God. Uh, perhaps one in that group has a Bible that he hides so that the authorities can't confiscate it or imprison him for having it. Uh, we enjoy great freedoms and we should not take them for granted. We need to commit ourselves afresh and anew each day to the Lord Jesus Christ and the life that He has called us to. So Peter says, just as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. The words themselves mean, it literally means to arm yourself with these weapons. Uh, Peter is speaking in, in military language. The Christian life is a life of spiritual warfare. We battle against unseen enemies. Again, not against flesh and blood. We too often pick out easy targets. People. Our warfare is not against people, but against principalities and powers, the spiritual authorities that are behind the enemies of the gospel that so often display themselves through the actions of, of people. Jesus fought those same enemies. He suffered in the flesh. Again, he suffered as no man ever suffered. And then he suffered on the cross, again, taking upon himself the, the wrath of God for sin. He suffered in the flesh and died on that cross. How could he do that? Peter says, arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. Church, we've got to determine that we're going to think like Jesus thought. The world in which we live is constantly trying to press us into its mold. All right? The culture in which we live is constantly trying to make us think the way the culture thinks. We are bombarded daily, hourly, 
by the message of who we should be, where we should go, how we should dress, what neighborhood we should live in, what car we should drive, what food we should eat. It's a constant thing. We need to be recommitted to what the Word of God says to us about how we should live. Committed to Christ and, and a Christ-like mentality. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we should look to Jesus the founder and perfecter, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus knew that suffering was coming. All you have to do is look at him as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was weary and he was weak and the Bible says that he, he, he sweat great drops of, of blood. He was troubled like we can't even begin to, to understand and yet he knew that there was joy that the Father had set before him. So he endured the cross. The cross of Jesus is the proof that we need that suffering leads to victory. If you need to, to, to have that proven to you, just look at Jesus' life and the cross. The suffering of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, that suffering led to victory again, as we were reminded last week. Paul had armed himself with this way of thinking. In Philippians chapter 1, he, he says this. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And there it is right there. I, I think most of us would love it if Paul had stopped with those words, to live is Christ. But he didn't stop there. To die is gain. He said, if I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, if, if I continue to live in this body, in this life that I have known, it will mean fruitful labor. I'm going to live and work and serve and love the Lord Jesus and love His church and sacrifice myself for them. That's the fruitful labor that he's talking about. And, and then he says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. In other words, whether to live on in the flesh doing this work that God has entrusted to me, or whether to go on home to be with Jesus, which meant his death. Let me tell you, as much as anybody we can read about in Scripture, Paul faced the, the threat of death on a daily basis. He never knew when it might be his day to be martyred for the faith or simply to, to drown in some ocean as he sought to reach some missionary destination. Paul laid everything on the line for the Lord. He had a Christ-like mentality. He said, I'm, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, let me just ask you this morning. Can anybody say amen to that? For my desire is to depart. My, he's saying, my desire is to die and to be with Christ Jesus, because that's far better than this life I have here. Most of us have a real difficult time with that. We think we're living our best life now, right? Isn't that what the world tells us? Isn't that what many guys who stand behind pulpits just like that, this, tell us? Live your best life now. Let me tell you, this life is not your best life, not if you know Jesus. But we need to commit ourselves to that kind of mentality. Jesus knew what awaited him beyond death and resurrection and exaltation. Paul knew what awaited him in the glories of heaven, but he knew, even though it was far better, he said, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You can just listen to the heart of this pastor. Uh, 
Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul had armed himself with the same way of thinking that Jesus was armed with as he served the Lord during his time on earth. Church, living for Jesus means dying to self. It's hard for us. We want to live for ourselves. But living for Jesus means dying for self. Peter is telling us that living for Jesus means embracing the suffering that will ultimately lead to our victory, to glory with God. Again, that's what's implied in the phrase, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. To suffer in the flesh the way that Jesus suffered in the flesh, again, we, we see his life and the way that he was treated by the world to whom he had come to save, right? God sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to love us and to save us, to lay down his life for us. And what did the world do? They killed him. They persecuted and killed him. Whoever has suffered in the flesh, like Jesus suffered in the flesh, again, has ceased from sin. Is Peter teaching us that, that somehow we can achieve sinless perfection in this life? Please say no. I'd love to say yes, but no is the answer. We, we have a hard time making it through the day without sin, right? Maybe the hour. As long as we live in this fallen human flesh, sinless perfection is not an option. Well, maybe it's an option, but it's not a reality for us. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What, what Peter is saying to us is this. Those who willingly embrace suffering for the cause of Christ, all right, demonstrate a resolve, a determination to turn from a life of sin and to live a life of sacrificial service. And that's what God has called us to, right? We're to turn from sin. We turn in faith to Christ to live a life of sacrificial service. I believe that's what Peter is saying there. We've not ceased from sin in the sense that we will never sin again. But we know that the way I lived before I met Christ, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I may stumble and fall from time to time. I may struggle each day with the temptations that, 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 that just surround me. But the desire of my heart is to live for the Lord. And I would just ask you today, is that the desire of your heart? You know, over the years, so many people that I've talked with struggle with, the, well, with their salvation. Do I really know the Lord? Am I really saved? You know, in light of how I conducted myself over the past six months, do I, do I, did I really know Jesus then? I, I thought I got saved when I was a teenager. The question that I so often ask people now when they ask me about whether or not they can be certain of their salvation, I don't ask them to take me back to a time when they walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer or when they were dipped in a baptistry. I ask them, tell me right this minute, what's the desire of your heart? If the desire of your heart is to live as Christ lived, to live as the Lord Jesus has called us to live, to follow him, to pursue him every day, to lay down our lives for the gospel's sake and for the sake of those all around us. And I believe that's a person who knows the Lord. You've, you've turned from your sin in repentance. You've ceased from sin, the way Peter uses that phrase. You, you've determined, I'm no longer going to live that way. I'm going to live for Jesus. So... 
Living for Jesus means dying to self and embracing this suffering that leads to victory. So we are to commit ourselves to a Christ-like mentality. It all starts right here in our mind. That's why it's so important for us to gather around the Word of God regularly. You know, people who don't, and they're everywhere, people who claim to know Jesus but don't go to church. That's hard for me. I know I'm not to be anyone's judge. But when you claim to know Jesus, but you say, I don't really have any use for his church, those two things just don't line up. We need one another. We need to gather around this word on a regular basis. You need to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word. You need to regularly, daily open this word in devotional times of prayer and and Bible study. You need to do that. We need to be reminded of these things all the time, every day. A Christ-like mentality. Again, not being conformed to this world, as Paul says in Romans, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Starts right here in our mind, a Christ-like mentality. But it doesn't stop there. What we learn, what we come to know must be lived out in our lives. We have to have a Christ-like manner of living. That's the next thing. And look what Peter says. Not only are we to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, but he says in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time. In other words, from this day forward, for the rest of the time. To live from this day forward in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The reality is, before you came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, you lived for your own human passions. That's what you lived for. That's how you established goals. That's how you made decisions. That's how you chose to do this or that rather than that or this. Your own human desires. You you lived for those things, but we're not to live for those things anymore. We're to live for the will of God. Again, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Again, does the love of Christ control you now? For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Again, as those who have committed our lives to Christ, as followers, disciples, ambassadors, we no longer live for ourselves. Life is not all about me. My life is not all about me. Our life is to be all about Jesus. We're to live for the one who died and rose again. Jesus said to his disciples, it's an astonishing statement. Sometimes we think only Jesus could make a, a statement like this, but you know, we're to be imitators of, of Jesus, right? That's what Paul said. Imitate me, because I'm imitating Jesus, so we should imitate Jesus. Jesus said in John 4:34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Again, can you make a statement like that? are the basic essentials of life. is What you need more than anything else, again, food, air, water, those are, the, those are what we need, right? Got to have those things. Is what you need more than anything else to live for the will of God, to accomplish His work? You know, God has established works that you're to, you're to, you're to walk in. You're to, you're, to, you're to pursue. You're to accomplish. God's purposes are to be accomplished in your life and in mine. He set it up that way. We talk about being aware of the presence of God. We sang about that, and what a wonderful thing. We need to be aware. 
God's all around, isn't he? We need to be aware that God has saved us for himself. He hasn't saved us for our comfort or convenience. He hasn't saved us just so that we can go live one day in heaven. He saved us for himself. To do the work, to live the lives that he has laid out for us. We're to live with a Christ-like mentality. We're to commit ourselves to living in a Christ-like manner. And of course what that means is, as I said a moment ago, this determination to leave our past behind and to press on to the high calling of Christ Jesus. Look what, look what Peter says here in verse 3. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Okay? He's making a comparison here, contrast between Christians and the pagan world in which they lived. All right, The Gentiles, the world of the Gentiles. Listen to how the Gentiles live. They live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I don't even have to define those words for you, do I? You know what they mean. And again, I said when I read that earlier, doesn't that sound like 2022? This, this is the world that we live in. You know, Neil told us this, he gave us this great explanation of the, the culture of the Greco-Roman world in which these early Christians were, were living in and, and how different it was than the, certainly from the biblical narrative and the way that Christians are to live today and perhaps even vastly different from the world in which we live in today. But when we read words like that, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, par drinking parties, lawless idolatry, I mean, that's primetime television, right? That's the world in which we live. And Peter is telling us, look, if you're going to war in this wild world in which we live, if you're going to... Sometimes I think we need to get back to a, a more Puritan theology. The Puritans use this phrase, the mortification of sin. Killing sin. It was said by the Puritan leaders, if you don't kill sin, sin's going to kill you. Church, we could use a little bit, a bit of that in our lives today. Killing sin. Our food should be as Christ was, to do the will of him who has sent us into this world to accomplish his work. We have to determine to leave our past. And again, when I say that these words identify the culture in which we live, you know what it also identifies? It identifies our past. I mean, for most of us, I was 24 years old before I became a Christian. I know what sensuality, passions, drunkenness. I know, I know what drinking parties. I know, I know about those things. Not supposed to be a part of my life today. It was a part of my life before. I lived like that before. But for the rest of the time, I'm no longer to live for those human passions, but for the will of God the time that is past suffices is more than enough. Whatever time you have indulged in your life, the passions of your flesh, enough. That's what Peter's saying. Enough. The past is enough. Don't think that you can indulge the pleasures and the passions of your flesh. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy those around you. We must make a commitment to live in a manner that Christ lived, working constantly for the will of God and not for the passions of our flesh. And let me tell you, another thing that we just have to just come to terms with is if we're going to walk with Jesus, 
If we're going to live for the Lord, if we're going to be light in this world the way that we are called to be light in this world, it's going to cost us something. I think sometimes that as Christians we think that we ought to be applauded for living our Christian lives before people. There has only been one time in my Christian life that I was ever applauded by a group of people for really living out my faith. There have been a few times that you've broke out into spontaneous applause in here. But the only time outside of this building that I have ever been applauded for living my Christian faith was one year, I don't remember what year it was, but a group of us went down to the Gay Pride Parade. We went down there to witness. Before the parade got to the park, to Lee Park, where it was supposed to terminate, I just simply decided I was going to take a walk through the park. I kind of wanted to see what this was all about. What's going on in here? What are these people here for? What are these booths that are set up? So I'm strolling through the park, just walking along, wasn't speaking to anybody, didn't go into any of the, the little booths to see exactly what they were doing, didn't take any materials from anybody, just walking through the park. Suddenly, I found myself surrounded by four Dallas police officers who told me, and I won't say it was real friendly the way they told me, that I had to get out of the park. I was an uninvited person. I started to say guest, but I guess if I was a guest, I would have been invited. I was not invited to that party. It was an invitation-only event, and I was not invited. I said to the police officers, well, okay, I'll be glad to leave the park. I didn't know it was an invitation-only event. Uh, happy to leave. My daughter, my 14-year-old daughter is here. She's right over there. Can I go get her and, and take her out too? They said, if you take one step towards your daughter, we're going to handcuff you and take you to jail. So I hollered at my daughter to meet me at the corner, which she heard and did. And then those four police officers escorted me out of the park to the applause of everyone in Lee Park. Church, when you determine to live for Jesus, you will not hear the applause of the world. At least not for the good that you do. It'll be for the things right here that Peter said. They applauded that day, but not because they were cheering me on. They were cheering me out. And you know what? You know what the only thing was that identified me as somebody that they didn't want in the park? I had a Bible in my hand. I had a Bible in my hand. Other than that, nothing. I didn't say a word to anybody. I didn't preach. I didn't witness to anybody. Only the Bible in my hand. We're going to pay a cost for following Jesus. We just have to get ready for it. And again, Peter says this. Look what he says here. Verse 4. With respect to this, again... So you're no longer participating in these passions and drunkenness and drinking parties. And when, with respect to this, they, the pagans, the guys you used to run with, they will be surprised when you don't join them in that flood, uh, same flood of debauchery. And they'll malign you. I don't know of too many people in America dying for their faith, although there are people all over the world dying for their faith. You know, it's still estimated that more than 300,000 Christians die simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Every year in the world, every year in the world, this year, 300,000 men and women will die simply because they profess faith in Jesus Christ. But we will experience persecution. There will be a cost even here in the United States of America. They'll be surprised, Peter says. Let me, let me just say, 
People will misunderstand you when you take a stand for Christ. One of the immediate costs of following Jesus is often what we would call social ostracism. People who know you, who have known you all your life, I mean, I'm thinking about people that knew me and knew me all my life until I became a Christian, they will not understand your faith in Jesus and why your life has suddenly changed. They won't understand that. And because they don't understand it, they won't appreciate it. There were people that I knew and loved. I wanted them so desperately to understand what God had done in my life, this wonderful thing that God has done for me. Let me tell you, they looked at me like I was out of my mind. And I later learned that that's exactly what they thought, that I had lost my ever-loving mind. When you live for Jesus, you're going to be misunderstood. Did you know that even Jesus' own brothers and sisters thought he was crazy? Crazy. He thinks he's the Messiah. He's out of his mind. Boy, were they surprised. Those who have known and loved the old you will not understand nor appreciate the new you. And you just need to be ready. You just need to, to again, embrace it. That's going to happen. And you've got to determine you're going to be okay with it. And then what will happen, not only will you be misunderstood, but Scripture says you'll be maligned. They will, they will malign you. The word is often translated blaspheme. They will blaspheme you. They will speak evil of you. The word malign means that. It means to speak evil of someone, to, to disdain them, and to express it verbally. And let me tell you, when you decide to follow Jesus, former friends and even family will resent your new pattern of living because it's going to shine a light on their darkness. And they're not going to appreciate that at all. And they're not going to want to be around you. And they may even go so far as to let you know that. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. But Peter doesn't stop there. I'm so thankful. He comforts us in the last part of this passage. He says, those who malign you, he said, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, Jesus is coming again, right? And he's coming again to set things right. And one of the things that he's going to do when he comes again, he's coming, he's coming as judge, right? He's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Those who have maligned you will find themselves under the judgment of Almighty God. Now, this is a comfort for Christians, right? We may be under judgment in this world. We may be marginalized, maligned in this world. But one day, when Jesus comes again, we'll be vindicated. Neil used that word last week, too. Jesus was vindicated through the resurrection. We'll be vindicated, too. Again, one day when every eye shall see and every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow that confessing Jesus is Lord. Let me tell you, yeah, they'll confess that Jesus is Lord. And guess what? That we were right to follow him. Most of us will experience only marginalization for our following of Jesus. Paul writes to the suffering saints in Thessalonica, he says this, God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord himself is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance 
on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let me just ask you again. Do you know the Lord? Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Has there been a time in your life when you realized that you were a sinner who needed a Savior and in repentance you turned from that sin, forsaking it, leaving behind, and with your whole heart turned to Jesus Christ to follow Him and to, to place your faith in Him? Has there been a time when you've done that? It better be. Because the day's coming. You know, we talk about Christ's return. And the one word that I believe is as true as any we can use, his return is imminent, which means it could happen at any moment. He could come before I finish this sentence. And if you've not believed God, if you've not received his son, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord, if you've not obeyed the gospel, and all of those things mean the same thing, if you've not been born again, the Bible says that you will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Because He's coming on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed. Let me tell you, when Jesus comes, I want to be among those who marvel at His coming, who rejoice. I want to be among those right now who, who, who long for the coming of the Lord who look for His return every day, and who live in light of the imminence of that return. You know what? If we lived every day with a sense of the presence of God in our lives, we'd live differently. If we lived every day with this expectation of Christ returning, we'd live differently. And that's what Peter's telling us. Be comforted, church. We're going to suffer some persecution. Some of us may even die for our faith. I know we don't even consider that, do we? Christian martyrs all over the world, not many here in the U.S., but there have always been Christian martyrs. And that's what Peter's talking about in that last phrase. He says, he says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. Talking about those who have died before the return of Christ. Those who have died prior to the moment that he wrote that sentence. He's not talking about the prisons and in, in, in the, the spirits in prison that Neil dealt with last year or last week. He's talking about people who have lived and died and perhaps specifically about those who had received Christ and yet died before the return of Christ. The gospel was preached to them that though they may be judged in the flesh the way people are, Christians are going to die today for their faith. They're going to be judged in the flesh for their faith and sentenced to death just as Christ was. But let me tell you, that's not the end. They're going to live in the Spirit the way God does. Christians should not fear death. Church, we shouldn't fear death. The worst that the enemies of the gospel can do is to kill us, but death only ushers us into the presence of the Lord. Jesus said this in John eleven twenty five 25 and 26. Of course, he's standing at the tomb of Lazarus when he says it. He says it to his sisters. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We don't have to fear death. Of course, Jesus ended that encounter with these words. He turned and he looked at Mary and Martha and he said, do you believe this? It wasn't too many minutes after that that their dead brother came hopping out of the tomb. 
Church, we can take God at His word. We should take God at His word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved.